We're up to chapter 3 of 2 Samuel, for those of you that have, uh, have lost track. Are you okay? Is that all right? Ready to go? <clears throat> all right, let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, it is <clears throat> the season of the eschatological David. It is the time of the incarnation of the eternal Son of the eternal Father. Something the historical David could never be. It is the time of the visitation of this planet. The visitation of salvation and everlasting glory. It is the time of great singing. Some of the greatest songs of the Christian faith written for this season. It is the time of great affection. Of families bonded together. It is a time of responding to the great gift of eternal redemption. We pray, O oh Lord, for humble hearts like the humble Savior who has come for us. We pray, O oh Lord, for joyful hearts like the hearts of those shepherds who first heard the good tidings. We pray, O Lord, <clears throat> for lives which are conformed and united unto this life, which is life eternal. O oh, do bless us in this season as you bless us day by day. In the name of the great and final David, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. <clears throat> now the narrative symmetries which our narrator used in the unfolding drama of the house of David and the house of Saul in Second Samuel 2 also folds into itself the army commanders, Joab and Abner. We have symmetrical elevations, David in Hebron, Ishbosheth in Mahanaim. We have symmetrical contestants, 12 verses 12 at the pool of Gibeon. We have symmetrical antagonists, Abner and Joab. We have symmetrical night journeys, Abner through the Arabah to Mahanaim, Joab via Bethlehem to Hebron. Our narrator causes us to pause <coughs> with the mirror symmetry at the pool of Gabeon, each side equally reflected in the water of the pool. And the outcome of that reflection appears equally symmetrical. 
as in a perfect mirror. Twelve fall down with twelve. Is the conflict between the house of Saul and the house of David a mirror symmetry? Equal reflections of competing kings and their competing kingdoms. Or is our narrator's use of symmetry more subtle, in fact, more profound? Is he using his narrative and structural genius to communicate something more telling about David, Joab, Abner, and Ishbosheth? We bring this question to 2 Samuel 3, the question of our inspired narrator's use of symmetry and what it signals about the continuing drama of David and his house. Is our narrator's symmetrical paradigm mirror replication or is it something else? Is it symmetrical mirror replication, or is it something else? Let's explore chapter 3 for the answers to that question. I'm dividing the chapter into two narrative portions, verses 1 to 16 as portion number 1 and verses 17 to 39 as portion number 2. As you scan verses 1 to 16, I'm wondering if you see any structural markers which may be present in the text, and if so, what suggestions you would make about what you see. Beginning with verse 1, as you notice that line, do you see it symmetrically repeated anywhere else? In verse 6, so there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David is repeated in verse 6. Now, as you note that bracket framework linking 1 and 6, you may want to leave some space between uh, your outline of the structure of 1 bracketing or attaching itself identically to 6, and now scan verse 2 and see if, in fact, anything there is symmetrically replicated. Bill, your head went up pretty quickly. Very good. So you'll notice that we have a larger frame, verses 1 to 6, around a smaller, more cohesive frame, verses 2 to 5. Both of them structurally linked or structurally framed by identical phrases. 
The second one, born to David in Hebron, brackets the list of his sons. All right, now you'll also notice that in verse 1, David is growing stronger, but the house of Saul is growing weaker. That suggests not a mirror symmetry, but an antithetical symmetry. Namely, there is a relationship between the two houses, but it is a relationship of opposition. David is gaining, is gaining strength, and Ishbosheth is becoming weaker. But as you can keep that thought in mind, you look down at verse 6, and what do you see there? Abner is getting stronger. Now we ask the question, is that an antithetical symmetry, as we saw in verse 1, namely, is Abner becoming stronger as the antithesis of Ishbosheth's weakness, or is there some other possibility for why the narrator reflects upon Abner's increasing strength. Or who is strong in verse 1? Who is strong in verse 1? So what may our narrator be doing in verse 6? Yes, that's verse 1, but that's not verse 6. <clears throat> and you see, he uses the very same word in verse 6 that he uses in verse 1 of David. As Abner increases in strength, is our narrator drawing Abner into the circle of David? In verse 6. Is <clears throat> he reflecting upon the fact that in the antithesis between the two houses in verse 1, the one growing weaker and the other growing stronger, that in fact the leader of the army in the other house is drawn into the same characterization as David is in the first verse. I throw it out as a suggestion to keep in mind as we look at the unfolding of the rest of this chapter, this section and this chapter, is Abner growing stronger in antithesis to the growing weakness of Ishbosheth, or is Abner growing stronger because he is a mirror of David growing stronger? All right.
Now, the next element to note is the word that ends verse 6 and the name that begins verse 7. And what do you call that? When the term that ends one verse is the term that begins the following verse. Link comes to mind, but I think there's another word. There is another word. That is a hook pattern. That is a hook pattern. The narrator ends the section which apparently deals with the relative strength or weakness of the house of David and the house of Saul, with Saul being the name that resumes the next narrative unit in the chapter. So he ties Saul to Saul because he has a seamless narrative. He's hooking the portions of his unfolding drama together by cluing you in. Last name in verse 6, first name in verse 7, these Narratives are integrally united. All right, now, in verse 7, you will notice another name that is reflected in verse 11. What name is that? No, because for those of you that do have Ishbosheth in verse 7, that is an insertion into the text which is not in the Hebrew, the original Masoretic text. Some of you may have a note in your margins that it is not in the MT, meaning Masoretic text, that is the Hebrew text. <coughs> Namely, the preposition he is there, not Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth has been supplied so that the name is uh, before you, but actually it's the pronoun he in verse 7. You also notice that that pronoun he is in verse 11. But what's the other name that appears in both verses 7 and 11? Abner, very good. All right, so our next unit is framed by Ishbosheth, or he, Ishbosheth understood, and Abner, and it concludes with he or Ishbosheth and Abner, so that verses 7 to 11 are a bracketed or framed small narrative subunit. That brings us to verse 12. And as you look at verse 12 and scan on down to verse 16, I wonder if you see any structural similarity Again, no, covenant is there. Verse 12, Abner sent messengers to David. Verse 14, David sent messengers to Ishbosheth. 
the drama advances by an exchange of messengers. The one from Abner to David, the other from David to Ishbosheth. Which brings us to the end of the first narrative section, verses 1 to 16, having seen a number of uh, structural uh, symmetries. All right, going back to our question, which we raised at the beginning, are these symmetries mirror reciprocities? Are they reciprocal, mirror-like reflections? Or is there something else which our narrator is attempting to communicate. Once again, we want to advance towards an answer to that question, but that question is going to be based upon the structural flow, the structural delimiters, the structural framework of the various subunits in this narrative. We have three Subunits in verses 1 to 16. All right, now let's go back to verses 2 to 5 for a moment. And the discussion of the birth of David's sons. This passage is paralleled in 1 Chronicles 3, 1 to 3. Some of you may have a marginal note to that effect. How many wives are here? Six. How many sons are here? Six. Right? Now, we have uh, six children born to David in Hebron. And what do we know about them? Let's begin with verse 2, the firstborn, Amnon. Ben, what do you know about Amnon? And? Is that the end of the story of Amnon? Pardon? He tried to make himself a king? No, I think you have him confused with somebody else. So, what happened to Amnon? Anyone? He was killed by, by Absalom. Yes, his half-brother. All right, so Amnon rapes his sister and is murdered by Absalom. Second son is Kiliav, born to Abigail, the widow or wife of Nabal. What do we know about Kiliav? Your silence is right. We know nothing about Kiliav. <laughs> nothing more than his name and that his mother was Abigail and his father was David. Which brings us to number three. Absalom, what do we know about Absalom? Carol? He tried to be king. What else did he do? Pardon? He got killed by his hair? Mm, Not quite. Whether or not his hair was caught in the tree or not is an interesting translation problem. It's more likely that his head was caught in the branches of the tree. But uh, we'll talk about that when we get to that point. Uh, Who killed him? Marge. Joab killed him. That's correct. What else did Absalom do? He killed Amnon. All right, we've already gotten that one down. 
What else did he do? He took all of David's concubines. He openly raped them in broad daylight on the top of the palace. <clears throat> all right. So we have another rapist in Absalom. Okay. Number four is Adonijah. What can you tell me about Adonijah? Yes, he gets killed. Why? I think he wanted to be king. He wanted to be king, correct. And how does he lay hold of the claim to become king? He wanted to have a bishag, correct. He wanted a bishag as his wife. So once again, we have the tale of a woman. Without an Ijah. And for that claim to take Abishag as his wife, Adonijah is put to death by Solomon because it is, in effect, an assault or a laying hold of the throne. <coughs> Which leaves Shephatiah and Ithrion. What do you know about Shephatiah and Ithrion? Once again, your silence is right. We know nothing. All right, we are three out of six. We know something about half of them. We know nothing about the other half of them. One comment on Absalom. You will notice that he is the daughter of, he is the husband of the wife of the daughter of the king of Gesher. Gesher is on the Transjordanian side of the Jordan. This is obviously a political alliance. Uh, David permits this marriage between Absalom and, uh, at, at, rather, David marries Maaka, the daughter of Palmai, in order to cement a uh, ally near the Assyrian border on the east side of the Jordan. So this is a political alliance on David's part and makes Absalom of royal blood twice over. He is a real blue blood. All right, now David here is multiplying wives, which is no credit to him, nor is it in uh, uh, fulfillment or in uh, concert with God's own direction for what the king should be in Deuteronomy 17. The constitution of the king in that chapter indicates that the king shall neither multiply wives for himself lest his heart turn away. Now, we don't have any evidence of David's heart turning away from the Lord at this point, but nonetheless, he is multiplying wives and laying himself open to that potentiality. Solomon would do the same thing and, in fact, have his heart turned away. All right. You ask the question... <clears throat> about David growing steadily stronger in verse 1, and is this small subunit about the birth of his children an indication of his increasing strength, because his house is increasing, his family is increasing. 
Is that what our narrator is suggesting by David growing steadily stronger? In any event, we have women involved in David's life in this opening small unit of the genealogy of David's family in chapter 3. Our next subunit, our next narrative, which takes place in the house of Ishbosheth, or in the kingdom of Mahanaim, also involves a woman. And the third subunit, in which the messengers go back and forth between David and Abner in this subsection, the last subunit also involves a woman, namely Michael. Women are playing a major part in the David narrative in 2 Samuel 3. Well, as we indicated the hook pattern between 6 and 7, we are now into verses 7 to 11 and the question of the Rizpah incident. Did Abner seduce or did he induce a sexual relationship with Rizpah? Yes or no? How do you vote? Let's have a hand, show of hands. How many say yes, he did? How many say no, he did not? Oh, you chickens who aren't voting at all. (laughs) You realize you can't be lukewarm. (laughs) You do understand that, don't you? You have to be hot or cold. You have to say yay or nay. Well, I won't force your conscience, but I remind you that the Bible does require that you take a stand. (laughs) Maybe you think that this is not such an important stand to take, but what do you think Abner thinks? What do you think Abner thinks? Abner's bluffing. Abner is bluffing, says Robert. Ishbosheth's terse accusation there in verse 7 consists of five words in the Hebrew text. And he's met in response by a torrent, a torrent of speech from the mouth of Abner. It's the longest speech in the entire chapter. And who is silent? From whom do we hear nothing? Rizpah is silent. Is it significant that the narrator does not allow Rizpah to speak? Is her silence damning or is it exculpating? Or is she like other women in this chapter, present but silent? Hmm. Hmm. All right. If Abner is guilty, let's assume that Robert is right and that he's bluffing and he is guilty of sin. If Abner is guilty, why did he do it? If he did it, why did he do it? What's motivating him? 
power? What kind of power? He wants to take over. Well, why is taking Saul's concubine equal to taking over? Dominance, but why taking the concubine? No. Because she's the concubine of the king. He lays hold of her. He lays hold of the kingdom just like Absalom does when he lays hold of David's concubines, correct? Just as Adonijah is doing when he asks to take Abishag for his wife, he's laying hold of that which belonged to the king and therefore he wants the kingdom. All right, so if he's guilty, then he is making a move on the kingdom. But he bristles. He bristles with the accusation of a degrading insult. Do you think that I am a dog's head? That's an extremely strong counter statement. Extremely strong. He protests. He says, I have shown kindness to the house of Saul. The Hebrew word there is hesed. Very, very strong word. Means loyalty. Steadfast loyalty. I have shown steadfast loyalty to the house of Saul this day, and you know it. It is evident that I have done this to you. And you accuse me of this as if I'm a dog's head. And finally, he rejoins, and yet today, notice the double today. Yet today you charge me with guilt concerning this woman. As if he protests his innocence, as if he's not guilty of what he's been accused of with this woman. But no one is listening Everyone is charging Abner with deceit. Everyone agrees that he's a liar. 99.99% of all the commentators say he is a scumbucket. No one is sympathetic. Everyone charges Abner with fawning injured innocence over the accusation while deflecting the spotlight from himself with an accusation that he hurls in return. Just you wait and see if I don't turn the kingdom over to David. Verse 10 is regarded by virtually all of the commentators as a reflection of Abner's arrogance. What he did for Ishbosheth, namely made him king and established his kingdom, he will do for David. Arrogance is the character of the man even in Saul's harem. So, Abner is regarded as a deceiver and he's regarded as an arrogant deceiver. And in that 10th verse you will notice the marismus. In fact, there's a double marismus or merism in that verse. The word merismus is a term in which the whole is described by the sum of its two parts. 
The easiest marismas for you to remember is in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The whole cosmos consists of the heavens and the earth, a marismas. The term referring to both parts making up the whole. Or we could say land and sea make up the entire world. Another marismas. The marismases in verse 10 are twofold. Where are they? Anyone? Art? Israel and Judah, which is the whole of Palestine. Okay. And what else? Dan to Beersheba, which is the whole of the land from Dan in the north, the northern boundary, to Beersheba in the south, the southern boundary. Here you also have an indication of how far David extended the boundary of Israel. David and Solomon extended the empire or the kingdom of Jerusalem to its greatest extent, its glory extent, from Dan to Beersheba. All right, so the whole of the geography of the nation of Palestine or Israel is described in the uh, in the Marismas Dan to Beersheba. All right, so is this in fact all simply mendacious bluster? On Abner's part. That is, he is a deceiver and he's blustering about the fact that he's been conked. Is there truth in these declarations? Is there truth in these declarations? What truth is there if there is? Yes, but what does he say about how he had done it? With loyalty, with hesed, yes. Was Abner loyal to the house of Saul? Is that a true statement? It is a true statement. He had shown steadfast loyalty to the house of Saul. That's one of the reasons he set up Ishbosheth in Mahanaim, because he was loyal to his former king. Is it the case that he had not delivered Saul's son into David's hand? That is a true statement, is it not? He had not handed Ishbosheth over to David. He had preserved him and set him apart across the Jordan to protect him. So if these are true statements, they indicate a measure of integrity in Abner. And does that integrity include the rebuttal of the charge of guilt concerning Rizpah? Let's ponder that. It is possible that there is a consistent pattern in Abner's speech, a consistent pattern of integrity being declared here. It is possible. Art, you had your hand up. I was just going to say, 
you charge me with a guilt concerning the woman? Is he not deflecting the charge of the guilt? Is he not saying, you charge me with guilt and yet I am not guilty? Is it possible that he's obviating the declaration by saying, you call me a dog's head and charge me with guilt concerning this woman? I'm not a dog's head and I'm not guilty of this woman. Anyway, another hand up. I don't know that you can say that it's Ishbosheth being uh, afraid of David as he is afraid of Abner. Uh, but I like the suggestion that uh, Abner and Ish- Abner being drawn further into the circle of David's own strength of character. Uh, that is an angle which I am uh, urging you to consider, uh, to think about. Is the narrator doing something here which is subtly uh, not... Uh, apparent, it looks like uh, Abner can't get off the hook, but is it possible that he can? So let's let's continue to think about this as we look further into the narrative drama. All right, on the supposition that Abner is laying hold of Rispa, is laying hold of Ishbosheth's throne. On that supposition, on the supposition that he is guilty as charged. He is not innocent. He is guilty. What is to prevent him from going all the way and taking the crown off the puppet king's head? If he's an arrogant fornicator, why not an arrogant regicide? What holds him back if he's guilty on the one hand from simply killing Ishbosheth for charging him with guilt here? Or is Ishbosheth suddenly a paragon of truth and virtue? He didn't hesitate to enjoy the crown he didn't deserve, nor did he hesitate to enjoy the delights of a kingdom that were not rightfully his. His own life is a lie. Is it beneath him to accuse others of being like himself? Deceivers, tricksters, fornicators... Does Ishbosheth falsely accuse Abner even as he falsely wears the crown of Israel in Mahanaim? Well, in verse 12, to whom does Abner turn? He turns to a man of royal integrity, doesn't he? Is it because he recognizes integrity and is drawn to it when his own integrity is under suspicion and he looks for a vindicator? He sends a diplomatic envoy to conclude a covenant with David 
A covenant which will unite the divided nation. In verse 13, David says, good. I will make a covenant with you. Only I demand one thing from you, and that is that you bring me Michael, Saul's daughter. Now, here's Abner coming to David Cappenhand and saying, I'm going to bring the nation of Israel to you in Judah. And David says, good, but bring me Saul's daughter first. Why? Why the woman in the ointment? Why the woman in the formula? Why call for Michael when the kingdoms being offered to him, the divided kingdoms being offered to him on a free platter? Well, because Michael is uh, Saul's daughter. So? Very good. So he is bringing Michael as the symbol of Saul's remnant, okay, and bringing her to himself, all right, as an indication that this is a good faith covenant negotiation. George? Is there an offspring issue as well that any offspring from her will now be his heirs? No, because there are no offspring from Michael at all. Um, no, I don't think so. Okay? Why does he want Michael? He doesn't trust Abner. He doesn't trust Abner? I wouldn't. You are consistent, Robert. Margaret? <laughs> test of Abner's loyalty because he claims to be very loyal to Saul. Uh, yes, in a sense, but I think there's something more obvious here. Kristen? Is it the same thing with Ishbosheth accusing Abner of trying to... She will legitimate his reign because she is the son... She's the, she was married to him beforehand, but now she's uh, now she will be legitimately reunited with her first husband, so to speak, and so she'll legitimate David's claim to the throne. It's the same thing that Ishbosheth is doing with uh, accusing Abner of sleeping with the concubine. So it, it, it's good. It's a legitimation, though, because there is a marriage in existence, whereas Ab Abner is accused of a, a, a kind of a, a perversion of, of the. Yes, <clears throat> bring me the woman that legitimizes my. Rain, or he mentions he calls her Saul's daughter first, but then in verse fourteen he calls her his wife. Bring me my wife back. Bring me the woman that was taken from me. Bring me the woman for whom I paid a hundred foreskins of Philistines. That was the bride price. I paid it. It was taken from me. Notice he says she was betrothed to me in verse 14. She was given to me and then taken from me. She is my lawful bride. But Abner doesn't bring her. Who brings her? Her brother brings her. Ishbosheth brings her. 
Has Ishbosheth begun to see the handwriting on the wall? Has he realized that unless he brings David's wife to him, that in fact there's going to be more bloodshed in this long war? Verse 1. Verse 16 closes this first part of the narrative section by the poignant scene of Paltiel following Michael with tears in his eyes to Bahurim. Bahurim, which is just a little bit outside of Jerusalem, where Abner tells him to go home. Notice who is not crying as they go to Bahurim. Michael is not crying. Notice who is not protesting as they go to Bahurim. Michael is not protesting. As she was when she was taken from David and given to Paltiel, she does not protest. Nor does she display any loyalty to her husband. Nor does she show any loyalty to Paltiel, her husband, in fact, her de facto husband for these years when David was on the run. Michael is content to be passed around. She is content to be passed around at the whim of those who will manipulate her and give her a life which has advantages. Advantages. Oh, how much better it is to be the wife of Paltiel and not be on the run in the wilderness with David. Why should I make myself inconvenient, unpleasant, and my skin dry up in the desert sun as I'm running from one cave to another with my husband when I can be at rest in Paltiel's house? Blah, 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 blah. He's got a sauna in the backyard, too. Good point. (laughs) And as she comes to David at Hebron, she, of course, is once again being elevated to become the wife of not the king-designate, but the king-elect. Ah, now that is a royal advantage. We'll see Michael one more time in the David narrative. And we will see Michael once again reflecting the character that drives her life. Character that moves her heart. Character that allows her to be passed from one man to another at her whim and convenience. We will see Michael again characterized by our narrator and then she will disappear from the narrative. Okay? But did she have any power? I didn't think women had any power back then. I don't. I think she could object to what Saul did or what they're doing now. Um, let's let's think. Let, let's think about that. Okay. Um, if 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 uh, if I grab you after this study tonight, Kay, and I take you away from Bob, what are you going to do? 
If I tell you no, you're not going home with him. What are you going to do? This is 2009. You love that man. And I'm, I'm going to say, no, you're not going home with him. What are you going to do? You're going to start screaming. You're going to set up such a fit outside there that we're not going to have peace until the police come, right? The point is, your affection for that man that you've married is going to make you, you're not. You're going to go kicking and screaming. You're not going to go softly into the night. You're not going to say, okay, I'll go off with Paul Tiel. Okay, I'll go off with David again. You're going to say, no, I belong to this man. What's that? You sick bog on me, yes. I understand the consequences of that as well. But my point is, we're talking about the heart of marital affection. And it doesn't change just because sin is coming into the world and people want to manipulate you. Your affection for your spouse is so strong, if it is genuine affection, if it's not just, well, okay, it's convenient for me to be with this guy this time and this guy the other time and some other guy the next time. Your affection is so strong that you are undividedly united to that individual. You don't want anybody to put it asunder. And you're going to say, no, you're not going to do this to me and I'm not going to cooperate with it. You can kill me if you want to, but you're not going to take me away from him. What did God say? Two shall be one flesh. When God hath joined together, let no man break asunder. Now, whether you have the courage to do that, that's another matter. But the fact that she doesn't protest at all. She doesn't say a mumbling word. There, there, there is no, nothing coming out of her lips and nothing coming out of her actions. It says, hey, you know, let's get on with it. Where, where, where's, where's the next uh, royal bed, Cheryl? No, because she is a wife as she's traded back and forth. Now, granted, these are multiple marriages, so we have the issue there to deal with. But I'm, I'm, I'm focusing upon her original marriage to David and the fact that she allows her father to take her away from her husband. No father has the right to do that. And no wife should ever let her father do it. Pardon? Isn't that committing adultery? Yeah, she was committing adultery by uh, uh, being joined to Baltiel. That is correct. Which compounds the crime. Go ahead, Mark. Oh, yeah. I was just thinking still. Oh, what Kate Weren't women of a different position at that time? I mean, did they have the same rights or the same ability to speak out? Sure. Why not? Why wouldn't they? I don't know. I mean, I mean, I mean, they're not they're not trafficked like uh, you know they're not traffic. You don't trade them. The scripture. The, marriages, um, yes, you have multiple marriages, but you're not trading these women around. I would consider it trading. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I would. Well, you're 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 uh, you're you're, <laughs> you're playing with the word trade there. Uh, uh, though the multiple marriages are there and are not uh, uh, endorsed by God, nonetheless they are legal marriages. So those are wives. Okay, so uh, she's being passed around 
not because one individual has married more than one. She's being passed around to multiple men. This is adulterous. It's not monogamous. You can say polygamous, but it's still monogamous in the sense that it's one man and many women. I still don't think she had any choice. All right. Well, right, right. I agree. you're not persuaded of uh, my uh, protesting her non-innocence, her guilt, so we'll move on. <laughs> and you are at liberty uh, to protest. Now, what is the function of Michael in this incident? What is the narrator revealing by bringing her into the story? Well, first of all, the taking of Michael by David is as the taking of Rizpah by Abner, as has been pointed out. One is a mirror of the other. That's one way of looking at it. Or is the narrator mirroring two cases of injustice? Michael unjustly taken from David by Saul. David, the victim of injustice in the matter of a woman, and Abner, unjustly accused over Rizpah, Abner, a victim of injustice in the matter of a woman. Is the narrator paralleling these incidents in order to describe a uh, scene of injustice in symmetrical or similar veins. What then is the narrative symmetry revealing? The narrative symmetry between Abner and David. Let's go back to 2 Samuel 2 for a moment. In 2 Samuel 2, Joab and Abner were mirror symmetries of one another. But now let's look at verse 24, chapter 3. Joab's accusation to David, what have you done, is comparable to the accusation of Ishbosheth in verse 7, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Joab will build a case for an alleged plot on Abner's part to seize David's kingdom, verse 25 of chapter 3. Ishbosheth made a case with the Rispa incident that Abner was plotting to seize his father or his own kingdom. Joab makes a case that Abner is plotting to seize David's kingdom. And now, The essential point is Joab telling the truth in verse 25. Joab is a liar. He is a liar. Joab lies about Abner's motives. Is our narrator suggesting that Ishbosheth is lying about Abner's motives with Rizba. Is the parallel not a parallel of antithesis, 
but a parallel of symmetry. Even as Joab accuses Abner unjustly, so Ishbosheth accuses Abner unjustly, and David has been unjustly treated with respect to a woman as well. The characterization of Abner in this chapter, in my opinion, is the characterization of a man who is shocked into his senses by the degrading charge of the man he has served and realizes that that man is unfit for his continued loyalty. And having been charged with the degradation of sexually defiling one of the members of the harem of that house, that royal house, Abner turns in his integrity to a man who also has integrity. He turns to David, and he has a change of heart in making a covenant with him. And when we come back, we want to look at that covenant and the significance of it. Keep in mind that this covenant that Abner initiates, this covenant is a binding relational agreement. This is not a military negotiation. This is a religious binding. All right, stretch your legs. And we'll come back to continue. To put Abner in his place because now he's feeling his oats as king. He's beginning to throw his weight around. And he's attempting to humiliate Abner into a place of submission, not uh, propping him up as he has before. In other words, he's trying to chart his own uh, path of independence from Abner. And he does it with this most egregious charge, because obviously this would be the most serious charge against Abner to demote him, to degrade him. It's one of the reasons Abner reject, reacts so uh, strongly to it. Am I a dog's head? You are, you're trying to degrade me. You're making me a moral scumbucket. And he's doing it on purpose. But Abner's bristling makes him fear because he knows he's stronger than he is. So he backs off. That's, that's my articulation of why I think he does what he does. Whether that whether that satisfies you or not, that's another point. Go ahead. It does. That is correct because he doesn't count on the integrity of Abner. No, you're the first one to suggest that, Art. No, I don't think he was. I think he was content to be used until he started to realize he liked this royal life. And he liked this royal life and he didn't want this guy telling him what to do or, you know, kind of twisting him around his finger. So, like many kings who are who use others to get into their position or 
people who are brought to position by others, they begin then to exercise their own muscle and get rid of the people that brought them to the throne. That's happened over and over in history. Uh, You know, just look at your British history and you'll see it over and over again. Henry VIII, Edward VI. All right, in verse 17, we find Abner conducting a Gallup poll. He's surveying public opinion. And he begins with the elders of Israel, and then in verse 19, advances to Benjamin, to the tribe from which the family or the house of Saul had arisen. So he moves from the elders to the tribe of Benjamin, which is the family tribe of Saul's uh, uh, Saul's, uh, family, and then verses 20 to 21 on to Judah for a face to face with David in Hebron. <clears throat> Notice he comes to, he comes into the presence of David. He does not uh, negotiate from a distance. He comes with the negotiations already uh, solidified. He comes <clears throat> with the commitments of the elders and the tribe of Benjamin to support David's election as king. Notice in verse 18, he acknowledges that God himself has established David as a savior of his people Israel. How does Abner know that? He knows it because it is well known. It has been widely reported that God had chosen David to be the successor of Saul. That is common knowledge. And then in verse 21, you will notice that at the conclusion of this covenant relationship, this covenant bond, David makes a feast for Abner. The reciprocal aspects of covenants in the Bible are very often sealed with a covenant meal. The covenant meal or the meal that follows the covenant agreement is a way of expressing fellowship at the same relational level. That fellowship then is an expression of the covenant bond, the covenant reciprocity. The fact that David establishes this feast for Abner is an indication of David's recognition of the honesty with which Abner comes to make that covenant with him. And notice that as uh, Abner departs from that feast, in verse 21, he goes in shalom. Now when we go back to the reconciliation meal at the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament. We go back to the sacrifice in which the offerer, who is a sinner, brings his guilt offering to the tabernacle or the temple, and then after the offering has been made and accepted, He sits down in the temple or tabernacle court with the priests and eats a meal. The meal is indicative of the reconciliation 
that has occurred and has taken place as a result of the atonement for sin. Fellowship meal on the basis of reconciliation, on the basis of covenant conciliation and uh, intimate relationship. David is here dramatizing the fact that the shalom of his personal commitment to Abner is pledged to Abner by covenant, by fellowship meal, and by a declaration of peace as he departs. David and Abner are folded into one another in a dramatic way by this covenant relational ceremony, this meal that follows the covenant, and this, shall we say, benediction of peace, which is declared as Abner departs. Do not underestimate the significance and the poignancy, in fact, the theological depth of what occurs between David and Abner. David is not entering into this covenant relationship with a deceiver or a liar or a fornicator. He is entering into this relationship with a man who has come to make and enter into a covenant bond with him. And that in a conciliatory way, in a reconciliatory way, in order to make peace between the two, these kingdoms that have been at war. Notice verse 21 in contrast to verse 1. There's your symmetrical antithesis. Long war in verse 1, but peace in verse 21. Abner is folded into the dramatic character of the covenant relationship that David has already demonstrated in his covenant relationship with one of the members of the house of Saul, namely Jonathan himself. Now, this refrain, that Abner departed in peace, is repeated in a sequence of verbs that are duplicated in verses 22, 23, and 24. I want you to notice the pattern. David, the servants of David and Joab came, and Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. Came, sent, gone in peace. Verse 22. Verse 23. Abner the son of Ner came to the king. He was sent, he sent him away. He has gone in peace. Came, sent, Gone in peace. Verse 24. Joab came to the king. Abner came to you. Why have you sent him away? And he's already gone. What is missing? Who leaves the peace out? Joab leaves the peace out. Very, very indicative of what Joab is up to. It is not peace. It is bloodlust that drives Joab. In verse 22, we are told that Joab has been on a raid. He is bringing in spoils or booty from that raid. Had Abner brought anything to David? 
He, he brought Michael. What else did he bring? He brought all of Israel. Yes, he had brought the whole nation of Israel to David. Is Joab jealous because he does not bring as much as Abner brought? Abner is feasted, received by David, covenantally bound to David, and sent away in peace. Abner's getting the attention. Joab's getting very little attention. Is he pouting? No, he's not. No, he's not. What's he doing? Verse 27. What's he doing? He's taking vengeance. He's building up a case for retaliation. He's got a grudge against Abner. Why does he have a grudge against Abner? Because he had killed his brother. His brother's name? Asahel. He had killed Asahel. And so, Joab is not pouting. He's not jealous because Abner is getting more attention. Joab is making an excuse to feed his own bloodlust and to even the score for Joab, for Abner killing his brother Asahel. Verse 23. Joab realizes that Abner has gone in peace and it sets him aflame. Verse 24. Notice how he addresses the king of Hebron, the king of Judah. What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why have you sent him away? What have you done? Hot, emotional language. In fact, this is the language of insolence. The language of insolence from a subject to his rightful king. Who would say, what have you done to his liege lord in this position of subordination to him? But Joab does. Is there also insolence in verse 7? Only it's insolence of the ruler to the subject in verse 7. Here in verse 24, it's the insolence of the subject to the ruler. Is our narrator suggesting by the parallel that it is the reversal of what happened in verse 7 in the case of Ishbosheth's charge against Abner? And in verse 25, what does he charge Abner with? Or what is the nature of this charge that Joab makes? It is slander. It is slander. He charges Abner with being a what? A deceiver. A a spy. Yes, he charges him with being a spy. And so he manipulates David by that charge. And David accepts the charge apparently simply because Joab says it so. I tell you it's so because I say it so. And notice how he names Abner in verse 25, the son of Ner. That is a uh, that is a contemptuous remark. He's the son of that low life Ner. Verse 24. Joab came to David. Verse 26. Joab goes out from David. The in and outs of Joab's movement, the in and outs of Joab's motivation. He has to trump up 
a charge against Abner in order to execute him, to murder him. But David knows nothing of what Joab has done to redirect Abner. David is out of touch with what is happening right around his royal throne. A relational subordinate, a servant relative, namely Joab, is manipulating him and keeping him in the dark about a dastardly murder. And David is losing touch. This is the beginning of David's removing himself or being removed from the sphere of his own responsibilities. What is it that has David preoccupied? Is it his six wives? Is that the reason the narrator inserts that section into this chapter? Is David being distracted by women? Is it something that is going to haunt him again? Is David becoming indulgent as he becomes comfortable? Is David becoming complacent, thinking that he doesn't need to keep his finger on the actions of his servants or those that are doing his bidding? How is it that one can violate a covenant that David has made and sealed, not only with a meal of conciliation, but with a shalom of declaration? How is it that one can violate that so obviously and get away with it? With David doing nothing about murder, cold blooded homicide. And he does nothing but parade a state funeral. Is David beginning to be drawn in the very same downward spiral that grasped Saul in 1 Samuel? In verse 27, Abner takes Joab aside. It is an ironic reversal of the fact that Asahel in chapter 2, verses 19, 21, and 23 would not turn aside. But Joab turns Abner aside and acts on a principle of bloody retaliation. Now, is Joab justified in taking blood for blood? Is he possibly justified under the avenger of blood provision of the next of kin in this matter? No, he is not. Why is he not entitled to retaliation? Why is he not entitled to 
eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. It was war. Asahel died in an act of civil war. That was not murder. That was self-defense on Abner's part. He even warned Asahel to turn aside so that he wouldn't have to slay him in defense of his own life. And when it was his life or Asahel's, it was Asahel's life that fell. That's what happens in war. You protect your own life for the life of your nation and other lives fall as your life and others is preserved. Abner preserved his own life in an act of self-defense. But the death of Abner at the hands of Joab is an act of treachery. It is an act of cold-blooded murder. Notice, there is no war in this act of murder. Three times the word peace is repeated in this section. Joab carries on a private war in a time of peace, underscoring the fact that this is a grudge match. Verse 28. And what do we make of David's reaction? What do we make of David's reaction when he takes no action? Protests his innocence. In fact, the first word in that text there where he speaks in verse 28, the first word in the Hebrew text is innocent, I am. But he does nothing. It is not the last time that David will do nothing in the face of horrendous injustice and unrighteousness and wickedness. It is not the last time David will do nothing. Now in verse 30, our narrator summarizes the motivation behind the incident going all the way back to the battle at Gibeon. And then he structures the funeral of Abner in a very interesting parallel. The speech of David in verse 31 begins the funeral cortege. Verse 32, notice all the people report or hear the report of the uh, cortege, the procession of the cortege, and they weep. David speaks again in verses 33 to 35. He gives his lament. And then in verses 36 and 37, all the people once again take note of the funeral proceedings. And finally, David speaks for the last time in verses 38 and 39. We have three speeches of David sandwiching the the response of all the people observing the funeral proceedings. In verse 31, we have the position of Joab and his henchmen. They are at the front of the bier, clothed in sackcloth. David brings up the rear. He makes a public statement by his position that he opposes those in front and what they have done. He does not march at the head 
of the funeral procession with those that have done the dastardly deed. This is a state funeral in Hebron, where David had attempted to be a man of honor. But his honor has been betrayed, betrayed by his own cousin and by his own near servants. Verse 32, all the people weep, is framed by verse 34, all the people weep. And in between we have David's lament. You will notice two similes. Should Abner die as a fool dies? Simile number one. Simile number two, verse 34. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. Notice the simile in verse 30, uh, 33 again. It is followed by a question. A simile followed by an interrogative. Notice the simile in verse 34. It is a simile followed by a declarative. As one falls before the wicked, so you have fallen. It answers the question of verse 33. Did Abner die as a fool? No, he fell as one before wicked, as one falls before the wicked. And in between is sandwiched the bicolon, your hands were not bound nor your feet put in fetters. A double negative, a double negation which is a double positive of Abner's character. Who would have had his hands bound and put in fetters? A criminal. A criminal. Abner is not a criminal. David is declaring Abner's integrity in the lament. The double negative is a double positive endorsement of Abner's personal character. Did Abner die as a fool? The Hebrew word is Nabal, Nabal. Did Abner die as Nabal? It's a rhetorical question. No, he did not. Who then are the fools? Notice the parallel, verse 34. The wicked or treacherous men who killed him, they are the fools. The interrogative asks the question. The declarative gives the answer. Verse 35, David fasts, will not eat bread. Verses 38 and 39, bound together by the word today. Lots of words from David in this concluding section. Lots of words, but no action. Verse 39, David admits that he is weak. Ah, Are we back to verse 1 and the house of Saul? Oh, I like that. The only fly in the ointment is that the Hebrew words are not the same. (laughs) So I can't push it too far. But nonetheless, David's admission here is an admission of a moral flaw in his own character. I am weak today because of the sons of Zeruiah who are too hard for me or too difficult for me. He's admitting his own impotence, his own weakness. He is admitting that he can't handle Joab. David is admitting that he's not really 
the king he ought to be. For he allows a criminal to get away with cold-blooded murder. And he is the chief magistrate of the kingdom in which that crime occurred. And he winks his eye at it and does nothing. Is he afraid of Joab? As Ishbosheth was afraid of Abner, the ironies abound. The symmetries keep jumping out at us because the narrator presses us, pushes us, forces us to think more deeply about the characterization of Abner and Joab. And now, David. The character of David is on the brink of modification. Tragically, we will follow this modification into the decline of David as we move through Second Samuel. Question? Uh, yeah, is there a foreshadowing in the mention of the sons who caused David so many problems in the beginning and, and this, this chapter where it ends with his confession of his weakness? Is that what the narrator is, is setting us up for? Question is, is the mention of the sons that caused so much grief in David's family in this chapter and the ending comment about David's moral weakness, is it a foreshadowing device? I think it is very likely a foreshadowing device. I think he is anticipating, particularly the naming of the three most troublesome sons, I think he is anticipating the rest of the story. More? Yes. Um, okay, so David's weakness at the end, I know I, I recognize your desire, but David is not as not weak the way Saul was weak and the way the house of Saul would have been weak. And so... It's consistent, even though it's a it's an idea of weakness. It's consistent that David doesn't sink as low as Saul in his house of some. Uh, there is some truth to that. However, uh, in, uh, the, the comment was that uh, uh, David doesn't sink as low as the house of Saul sinks, and yet he murders his own mighty, loyal soldier. He, he does to Uriah what Saul tried to do to David. I know, I'm not minimizing the sin of David, but David is still chosen and elect of the Lord and loved of the Lord. And he is redeemed from his sin. So because... But his weakness then is not the same as Saul's weakness, which is a weakness of the hatred of God. Correct. So David's weakness is not the same weakness. Correct. He comes to repentance for his sin, which Saul never does. The display of his own sorrow of heart in Psalm 51. All right, chapter 4 which, as you can see, we can do quickly. (laughs) 
Now we begin with the structure of chapter 4, and look at verse 1, and look at verse 12. You have an inclusio in the chapter. You have a phrase that occurs in the opening verse and a phrase that occurs in the ending or concluding verse. The phrase Abner in Hebron, the narrative ends where it begins. In verses 5 and 7, you have a symmetry. Namely, the sons of Rimmon departed and came to the house of Ishbosheth. They came into the house of Ishbosheth in verse 7. But we ask if 5 and 7 are symmetrical duplicates, then what is the point of verse 6? It would appear to be an unnecessary redundancy. Let's hold off on that for a minute, but I want you to observe the fact that he has sandwiched verse 6. It looks as if he doesn't need to say what he has said in verse 6, but we'll come back to save him from redundancy. And finally, the duplication between verse 2 and verse 5. The names of the sons of Rimmon, Biana and Rakov. Verse 2, and then in verse 5, Rakov and Biana. Why did he reverse the order? Notice, Biana and Rakov in verse 2. He reverses the order, Rakov and Bayana in verse 5. He does the same thing again in verse 6. He does the same thing again in verse 9. Why does he reverse the order? Because Rakov is the ringleader. Rakov is listed first in the grouping of the two three times because he is the leader of this plot. Well, how does verse 4 fit into this whole chapter? The higher critics, all the liberals say it doesn't belong here. It was stuck in by a confused redactor. Shouldn't be there. Belong somewhere else in the book of 2 Samuel. No, this is not a mistake, nor is it a digression. Our, editor, our narrator, our author, has not forgotten himself. It is a narrative reflection as part of a larger story. How so is it part of a larger story? It's the final stage in the eclipse of the house of Saul. It's a flashback to the battle in which Saul and Jonathan died and the report coming to the house of of uh, Saul and Jonathan and the nurse taking up Mephibosheth and falling so that he became lame. The downward spiral that drags Ishbosheth down will end the house of Saul? No, it will not. One is left. Is he a potential candidate for the throne? Is he a competitor for David's crown? No, he is not. Why is he not a competitor for David's crown? 
because he is lame and crippled on his feet. He is disqualified from being a competitor for that crown. But even more so, he will not even grasp for that crown. Well, verse 1. The location of this incident is in Mahanaim on the east side of the Jordan in the Transjordanian weakness, uh, Transjordanian region. Ishbosheth's weakness, his fear, as it was mentioned in chapter 3, verse 11, is an indication of his impotence. He cannot prevent the defection of Abner, and all Israel is disturbed. Why is all Israel disturbed? Because Abner conducted an embassy to reunite all Israel with David and got murdered for his troubles in David's own capital city by David's commander-in-chief. And now all Israel is troubled, as rightly they should be. Verse 3, the role of Bayana and Rakov. Notice the term that is used here. I'm sorry, verse 2. Notice the term that is used there. They are commanders of bands. It's similar to the word that was used in chapter 3, verse 22, in which Joab returns from raiding parties. So, Bayana and Rakov are platoon leaders of raiding parties, which means that they are experienced in the art of doing what? Guerrilla warfare, in which they do what? Kill people, exactly. They are experienced killers. And where are they from? What tribe? They are from the tribe of Benjamin. Notice the significance here. Benjamites against a Benjamite. Why? Why these Benjamites against a Benjamite? Ishbosheth's a Benjamite. Why are these Benjamites against Ishbosheth? Notice what it says there in that second verse. They are from Beeroth. They have been forced to flee to Gitaim. Nobody knows where Gitaim is, but it's perhaps near Gath. Where is Gath? In what country? Philistia. So, had Saul forced the inhabitants of Beeroth out of the land of Israel, had Saul forced them out of the tribe of Benjamin, had he forced them out of the territory of Benjamin, and therefore is the uh, act of Be'ana and Rechav, a blood feud against Ishbosheth, just as Joab's was a blood feud against Abner. Aha! Our narrator snags us again with the symmetries. What looks like an incidental geographical comment may be telling us legions of information about the hatred in the hearts of these two they are going to get even with the Benjamites, in particular the Benjamite king. We notice in verse 5, as we've already pointed out, the symmetry. But here I point out the word depart in verse 5 and in verse 7, the word arrive. And that sandwich is verse 6, again, as I pointed out. Notice, they come to the house at noon. In midday, verse 5, they leave the house at night. The time factor in verse 5 and 7. 
Notice the space factor. Verse 6, they enter the middle of the house. Verse 7, he is on his bed in his bedroom. The space factor, the time and space factor in 5, 6, and 7. The symmetry jumps out at us. There's a match between time, midday and nighttime, and space, middle of the house, and on his bed in the bedroom. But why the duplicate, verse 6 and 7, they struck him. They struck him. Once again, has the narrator forgotten himself? Is this an unnecessary redundancy? Particularly in verse 6. Verse 6, as a sandwich between 5 and 7, gives us a detail that neither 5 or 7 give us. What does it give us? No. What does it give us? Wheat. Wheat. They came into the middle of the house as if to get wheat. How did they get inside the palace? They got inside the palace pretending to be coming in for wheat, which would mean they would be carrying... What are you going to carry the wheat in? A sack. But what are they going to carry in the sack? His head. Exactly. So this is not an unnecessary redundancy. This is telling you how they plot the intrigue, how their insidious entrance into the middle of the house is in order to kill him. Now, many versions say in verse 6, they struck him in the belly. Some of your versions, particularly King James, say the fifth rib, which echoes with where Asahel was killed, chapter 2, verse 23, and where Abner was killed, verse chapter 3, verse 27, in the fifth rib. It will also be the place where Joab will slay Amasa at the end of 2 Samuel. Verses 8 and 12 are framed by Hebron. And now their claim as they present the head to David. They say that it was God who was in it. Even as David's men in 1 Samuel 24 said that God had given Saul into his hand, as Abishai said in 1 Samuel 26 that God had given Saul into David's hand, this feigned piety that having now committed a murderous act, God was behind it. David's testimony in verse 9 is to endorse the providence of God in his life. Indeed, the Lord has redeemed my life from all distress and trouble. Verse 10 describes what incident? The report of the Amalekite in 2 Samuel 1. And you'll notice here that that uh, Amalekite was seeking a reward in verse 10. Therefore, in bringing Saul's crown and bracelet, he was actually looking for a reward from David, uh, from turning those uh, uh, articles over to him. And so are these individuals. They are looking to be rewarded for delivering the head of David's enemy. What does he say about Ishbosheth in verse 11? The New American Standard translates this verse, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed. I don't know whether any of your versions say anything other than righteous. A righteous man. Do they? Innocent. Innocent Innocent is a better translation. Innocent here because Ishbosheth is not righteous. He is not upright. 
He, in fact, has wickedly taken David's throne from him, or at least been a competitor to that throne. So it's better to translate this word here. He is innocent of having been deserving to be murdered in his bed. And finally, verse 12, he cuts off the hands and feet of Bayana and Rakov. Why does he cut off their hands and feet? Margaret said they won't do that anymore, but why the hands? Why didn't he just execute them and be done with it? Why did he cut off their hands and feet? Because it's with their hands that they cut off Ishbosheth's head. So he makes an example of tacking up their hands and their feet when they fled from the scene of the crime to David. He makes an example of uh, their, uh, their extremities. And the end of verse 12, the irony, Ishbosheth and Abner, who have been joined in resisting David, are joined in death in David's capital. Ishbosheth's head buried in Abner's tomb. All right, now let's take a moment to look at the big picture and try to assess our narrator's broader purpose. How does this chapter fit into the meta-narrative? Or shall I say, how do chapters 3 and 4 fit into the larger narrative? Well, first of all, it is apologetic. Namely, our narrator is declaring a defense of David from blood guilt. As in the case of Saul, he uh, cleanses himself of guilt in uh, terms of uh, seeking Saul's life or killing Saul. So he is declared to be innocent in the case of Abner's death and Ishbosheth's death. In that regard, then, David is still a part of an upward spiral. He is demonstrating the fact that he is not himself a bloodthirsty murderer. In verse 9 and 12 of chapter 4, you have an indicative-imperative relationship. Notice the indicative in verse 9. As the Lord who redeemed my life... And then the imperative in verse 12. He commands the young men to execute Bayana and Rakov. The relationship between the indicative and imperative is direct. It is righteous. It is an aff- affirmation of justice. But why didn't he do it in chapter 3? Why didn't he do it with Joab? Why doesn't he treat Joab the way he treats these low-life Benjamites? Why is David ambivalent? Why is he inconsistent? Why is he not practicing justice consistently? Why is he not doing righteous judgment in every case? And so David's life becomes a paradigm of a struggle between life and death. The life of David, the death of the house of Saul. The suicide of Saul, the self-defense in the death of Asahel, the treacherous murder in the death of Abner, the treacherous assassination in the death of Ishbosheth. David's life emerges from death spirals. Death spirals. And one... One lives 
out of those spirals. One lame boy lives out of those spirals whose life will parallel David's even as his life will be mirrored at David's table. Mephibosheth will be central to the life of David, more central than you realize, because you remember him as the lame boy that was treated with kindness by David, and then you forget him. But the narrator does not. The narrator does not. So stay tuned for the character of Mephibosheth. Well, what about the biblical theology here? What about the revelatory dimension of what God is trying to demonstrate in these two chapters filled with injustice and cold-blooded murder? If David anticipates the eschatological David, and I trust we're all agreed on that, then how does the eschatological David mirror himself and his kingdom in David at Hebron in 2 Samuel 3 and 4? Is there an intrusion of the eschatological kingdom of David in the kingdom of David at Hebron? Is there? Yes, but not consistently. Justice is done here, but not uniformly. There is an uneasy and ominous sense of the foreboding future in the bloody present of 2 Samuel 3 and 4, as if death is to mark David's career, as if the downward spiral is going to draw him into the portals of bloody death and treachery. Is injustice or halting inconsistent justice to mark David's career? Is David's career and David's kingdom the more excellent way? That's a rhetorical question. No, it's not. The political monarchy that displaces the political theocracy is not the eschaton. Not the model of perfection for mankind. The glorious kingdom of David and Solomon is not the golden age of the future of mankind on this earth. No, it is not. The monarchy which transcends David's kingdom as well as displaces David's kingdom, that monarchy is the goal of God's plan of redemption in history. His plan to draw his subjects out of history into eternity. An eternal kingdom with an eternal David, with eternal justice, with no more blood guilt, with perfect righteousness, with no inconsistency, no more sin, no moral weakness, and no more death. That's the kingdom that is better than David's in 2 Samuel 3 and 4. 
And in these last days, the eschatological David has made you citizens of that kingdom. There is no unrighteousness in the eschatological kingdom of the eschatological David. All right, we finished the fourth chapter right on time. Do you have any questions or comments? Yes. Can you make anything of the similarity between the names Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth? No. Um, uh, uh, one means uh, son of Belial in in, uh, in one rendering, uh, and uh, I don't think Mephibosheth uh, bears that character at all. So the Bosheth at the end. Uh, it doesn't determine the character of the individuals. Art? What is the connection between verse 1 and verse 2 of the following in chapter 4? Um, it's an indication of the fact that Israel, uh, under Ishbosheth's now uh, non Abner leadership, is quaking and trembling as a result of what happened in chapter 3. And the consequences are that uh, uh, this, the, the, uh, the, the uh, grudge-bearing Benjamites come to resolve that tension by removing the one who's standing in the way of bringing some kind of resolution. Namely, let's take Ishbosheth out of the picture. And then all Israel will go to David, even as Abner had wanted them to go. That serves Joab's purpose as well, but it serves Joab's purposes with Abner out of the way. In other words, that all Israel will come to David in Hebron. So these two fellows are simply hastening the process. But they're doing it because of their own, in my opinion, their own blood feud with the house of Benjamin and the house of Saul. That's right. Been nurturing it for years. Correct, because there's no strong man to prop up Ishbosheth anymore. They got rid of him. Okay, so we'll get rid of him. We got rid of Abner. We'll get rid of Ishbosheth. Yeah, evening scores, in my opinion. 